Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in government. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to In Transition, the podcast that explores the practice of content marketing in government. My name's David Pembroke, and thanks very much for giving us some of your valuable time today. Content marketing is a strategic business process that involves the creation, curation, and distribution of useful, relevant, and consistent content designed to meet the needs of a specific audience in order to achieve a desired citizen or stakeholder action. It's a modern approach that combines the power of strategic communication planning with the distribution of online and offline channels. Well, this week, we're back home in Canberra to take on one of the biggest issues in content marketing, and that's writing. In my opinion, it's the single most important skill for all content marketers. Clear writing suggests clear thinking, and we can always improve the way that we write through practice and technique. But joining me today in transition is a writing expert, Matt Fenwick from True North Writing. Matt, thanks very much for being in transition. David, thank you for having me. Matt, writing is really at the core of effective communication. To be able to write well is to be able to express your thoughts clearly. What are some of the basic tips that you like to pass on to people to improve their writing? Well, I often say that I don't have a lot of complicated intellectual property. You know, everything I know could be written on the back of an index card. It's actually the doing that's that's the hard part and keeping a few really simple things in mind. So number one is it's not all about you. And particularly in government, we often tend to write out of what we know. We write about things that are familiar to us and that are important to us. But so often we forget about what the person sitting at the other end of the the internet connection is going to want to know about. So one of the things that I often do with my clients is just to say, what are the questions that your, uh, that your audience wants to have answered. And this is a really beautiful technique because you can use it two ways. You can use it firstly to plan content. So if you write content that answers questions, you know that's going to be relevant. You can also use it to evaluate content. So if people out there, um, uh, maybe they've got a document that's been through a few hands and they're starting to go a bit cross-eyed with it, they can just take a step back and look at the key sections and go, what question is this particular section answering? And if it's not answering a question, then perhaps it might be worth getting rid of it. So, yeah, stepping outside of that, uh, that self-orientation is a huge one. And, look, that's a lesson that I'm going to be continually reminding myself of for pretty much as long as I can hold a pen. Matt, that's a, that's a great insight, but how hard is it for people to actually get out of their own perspective and jump into the skin and the mind and the conversation that might be going on in someone else's? It's actually really easy and it's also incredibly hard. The reason it's hard is this, uh, this concept I just came across recently and it's called the Curse of Knowledge, which is a, a, a beautiful title. Uh, and I'll tell you how it works with a short sort of scientific study, if I may. Sure. 
Okay, so imagine that you've got a room uh, and in that room there's a table and on that table is a little a can with M&Ms written on it. So we get a little kid, maybe four or five, and we bring him into the room and we say, what do you think is, uh, is inside that can? So what do they say? M&Ms. Okay, and then we open it up and we find it's actually pencils. Okay, so what happens next is we bring another little kid into the room and we ask the first kid, we'll call her Mary, we'll say, what does this other kid, we'll call him Steve, think is in that can? And Mary will say that Steve thinks it's pencils. So that means that Mary isn't able to imagine what it's like not to know that thing. And where it gets really cool is if you ask Mary, so when we brought you in here, what did you think was in that can? Mary will say pencils. So not only has she forgotten what it's like to be Steve, she's forgotten what it's like to be Mary from five (laughs) minutes ago. Uh, And there's research which reproduces this for adults, but the study's way more boring and way more abstract. So I like the one with pencils. But the thing is, and I know this for myself, um, we like to think that we have magical insight into other people's minds. And this has been a really, really hard thing for for me to let go of. So people out there listening will no doubt acknowledge the truth of what I just said for other people, but they'll go, yeah, but me, you know, I, I know how it is. <laughs> so it's about, um, I guess, grasping that counterintuitive insight. What you believe about what you know about other people is probably only incomplete. And then we go to the, so the question of how do you get past that and I know, David, you're really big on personas. Yeah. And uh, look, back from my days in government, when we had a communication strategy, you would always see some kind of audience identification there. But it was often done in a really abstract kind of way. It might be just uh, stakeholders and users of X program. Yeah. And there's some real interesting research around this where um, I think it comes out of Microsoft where they found that if you actually create personas and use those in, you know, uh, communications development, it becomes a pretty good proxy for the actual, uh, actual direct data from, uh, from the end users. So the point is that if we use those personas, then we stand a decent chance of being able to overcome that curse of knowledge. But if we just set it out in a nice, boring uh, strategy document, you're not going to get that same insight. So really what you're saying is that there's a, there's a degree of humility in all of this, in writing, in this sense of discovery and being able to set aside what you believe to be the truth in actual pursuit of the truth. Absolutely, 100%. And ego is one of the least useful things for a writer to have. Uh, if you think your everything that you write is awesome, then you lose the capacity for uh, that kind of uh, mature criticism that we all need to polish up our writing. But then um, equally, if you think your writing's terrible, if you're hung up on, oh, I'm not a good writer, then you lose the opportunity to improve. And um, when I'm coaching people on writing, I always like to get out a sheet of paper and I'll draw a line and at the top of the line I put William Shakespeare and at the bottom of the line I put a peanut and I call it my continuum of writing ability. And the point is that none of us are Shakespeare. I know I'm not. 
you know, um, his plays would be performed while the ink was still wet. So that's how good he was. But all of us fall somewhere on that continuum. And the question is not, do you need to be a fantastic writer? It's how good does your writing need to be to achieve what you want to do? But really what you're saying is the writing will be effective if indeed you are answering the questions in the minds of the audience that you are seeking to influence. Yeah, I think that word effectiveness is key and so often how writing gets talked about and how editing gets done, it's a very, um, uh, it's a very red pen kind of mentality and look, I've done tons of, uh, tons of workshops, uh, attended workshops back from when I was in government and often they would focus very much on the finer points of, you know, misplaced modifiers and passive <laughs> voice and, and all of that stuff's important but it can obscure some of those fundamental questions of what do you need for your writing to be effective. So what you're really suggesting by the sounds of things is before you go near a keyboard, before you go near a pen, before you need to go near anything, you might have to pick up the phone and ring somebody and ask them and talk to them about what is it that they want to know about and perhaps to discover the language that is used by that audience to describe, in fact, what it is that they need to know. Absolutely. And this is one thing I like about working with uh, private sector clients. When I say to them, what questions do your, uh, do your end users have? I'll often be able to talk to the sales guys mm. who will uh, know it direct. Or, um, you know, often they'll even just give me the number of someone a client that I can just talk to myself. And one of the things I'm paying a lot of attention to is what is people's emotional state when they're engaging with this product or service? Because the whole language that you use when you come to writing will be very different depending on what that emotional state is like. And often uh, when I see people make the switch from government to writing for marketing... They try and go straight for the, um, you know, the direct sales sure. style of writing where yeah. it's buy now for well, this. Well, yeah, um, benefits, benefit selling. Yeah, it's, it's benefit selling but it's a very superficial kind of benefit selling where you think if you use as many exclamation marks as yeah. possible, that'll make your writing uh, automatically more exciting. Yeah. Whereas if you talk to the end user or get as close as you can, uh, what you find out is the detailed benefits. So it not, it's not just uh, gain peace of mind. It's say if you're looking at the NDIS, you know, it's know that you'll be able to receive the care that's right for you. So we can really dive into the problem and get the level of detail that we need for effective copy. So, okay, so we're going through the process. We've been on the phone. Um, we've spoken to somebody, um, you know, potential persona of, of the people that we're seeking to reach. How do you then assemble those insights? How do you go about, obviously, yes, you're taking the temperature of the emotion, you're, you're understanding the language, but how do I then take those insights and turn them into useful copy, useful writing? That's a, really, that's a really good question. So it's really helpful to distill what you've learnt 
in some form before you go straight into the writing process. And the kind of distillation you need will depend on the level of complexity. So if I'm just writing some Kickstarter copy for someone, I might just jot down a few notes. Conversely, if I'm doing a whole messaging plan for someone, then we're actually going to have... um, we're going to have a messaging document that's done as a first step before we put pen to paper. The other thing that's really, really useful to have is a bit of a template for the type of content that you want to write. And the reason for that is that it makes it easy for us because if we know, okay, we need to start by clearly describing what we're talking about, we're going to have a few headings, we're going to hit the detail a bit more here. That means that we can... A lot of the decisions are made for us. But it also means that if if you're a government communicator and you're going to be putting out more complex content, it means that, let's say, your website is going to make sense as a whole. So all of the pages about similar things look the same... So that means it, that means people can grasp it much more easily. They, it's like uh, the difference between driving in France and driving in the UK. You know, when you when you switch countries, mm. uh, there's a little bit of adjustment. So if you spare your users that kind of mental effort, then your content becomes more transparent. Yeah, design is an interesting, uh, well, fascinating part of all of the way that we communicate. And we'll come to that, I think, a little bit further down as we get into the interview a little bit further. So what about mirroring back to people after you've gone and got those insights? Do you then come and perhaps assemble a bit and then go back to the people and say, look, these are some of the things that I heard from you. This is some of the language. Is this sort of quite effective? Do you go to that level of detail in order, you know, in pursuit of clarity to try to then mirror back to them what you feel that they've spoken to you about? It depends upon the project, but certainly if I'm using direct uh, transcribed interview, then I'll always go back to the person I talk to. And that's not always easy. Um, I did a project for the National Council of Churches a few years back on a poverty awareness campaign And so I was talking to a Sudanese refugee, formerly homeless man, but in every case there was, I guess, an ethical responsibility, not just an issue of of clarity, but if I've taken their their experiences, taken their story, written written it up and effectively distilled it so it flowed, I need to take it back to them because that's making sure that they're still empowered in the process. The really funny thing was that when I did it, the formerly homeless guy corrected my spelling and, and grammar, so he was on to it. Okay, so we've got those insights, but now I want to get into the process of it, sitting down, getting ready, getting prepared, because, again, writing is just so fundamentally important. What tips do you, can you give to people once they've gone through this exploratory focus, they're now getting ready, they're, they're good to go, what do they do next? All right, there's this beautiful term that writers often use and uh, I'm going to call it dodgy first drafts. The actual word we use is is slightly different but this is a a PG audience. So the beautiful thing about doing a dodgy first draft is that you're just getting your ideas down. There's no pressure to be good. You're just creating something you can start with. And where I see most writers struggle is when they try and write 
WordPerfect copy straight off. So I get my dodgy first draft down and I always do and that. And is that just a stream of content? You're just trying to yep. get, get it, yeah, just yeah, whack yeah, it yep. down as quickly as you can to get it out, get it out of your head. Absolutely. Get it onto the screen. Yes. Yeah, and, uh, well, I, I often do it by hand. Okay. So um, I'm 37, which I tell you just because that sort of, that dates me. So I learnt to write by hand. Yeah. And then by the time I was at uni, there were these computers and I started drafting uh, on computer. But then I found that when I switched back to doing it by hand, everything just flowed a lot more easily. And if I showed you one of my first drafts, it would have arrows and squiggles and unfinished thoughts. And that's okay. That's, that's what we want. I'm one of those people that writes to discover what they think. So I might even need to go through a few, um, a few rounds of that. Probably the one tip I'd throw in here as well is it's often good if you just do a sketch of your content. Yeah. So don't try and write the whole thing. Just write maybe the first couple of sentences for each paragraph and that will also help you assess if it, uh, if it flows properly. And then go away from it. So give it a rest because uh, one of the things that happens when we read content that we've written, we're not actually reading what's on the page, we're reading what's in our brains. comes back to that curse of knowledge thing that I talked mm. about. So if you can, come back to it the day after or even a few weeks after that. Uh, I've just finished writing a book and being able to come back to that after a couple of months off... I've noticed things instantly that I was able to improve. So come back to it and when you're doing that second draft, that's the time where I'd be getting out the the computer keyboard and starting to put something down on paper. Um, And then it's a matter of refining it and here's where it's really good to know what your bad habits are. I like to think that the thing that makes me a professional writer is not being able to do the William Shakespeare and churn out word perfect copy. It's knowing what my personal bad habits are and knowing how to fix them. And so for me, there's things that I need to be conscious of. So when I'm going back through my draft, I'm looking at it and I'm seeing if I've done those things. The other thing is if it's a client project, I'll always get someone else to look at it for me. So I'm lucky enough to have a team of editors and writers that I'll bring in for different projects and so it's about having a humility to go, guys, tell me what you think. If there's something that maybe doesn't quite ring true for you, then let me know. And it's when you've got a, when you've got a version that's as good as you reckon you can get it in the time and the resources you've got, that's when we do that final polishing like the, the copy editing. Yeah, okay. But I can imagine some people sitting out there now thinking, oh, th- I just don't have the time to do this, you know. I'm under, I'm under so much pressure. I've just got to get it out because they're not looking for, for beautiful, perfect copy. I just don't have time to go through this process. Is that, is that a, a useful or relevant excuse? No piece of writing is ever perfect. It's just it's done. Yes. So the key here is that doing, following this process will actually save you time because – if you're trying to write something that's perfect straight off, then you're going to be agonising over particular phrases and you're going to be coming back and correcting yourself. 
Whereas the key here is at every stage, that dodgy first draft, that rough draft, that refining, all of those things are actually done quite quickly. So it'll happen perhaps over a slightly longer period of time, but you'll get more out of your day if you do it that way. So you're suggesting really that almost for every piece of writing, there is a format and a structure that you should follow to get an outcome. Absolutely. And one of the hardest things, particularly if you're a bit of a creative like myself, is realising that structures help. It's like what we were saying before around the page layout. If you've got a process that you can follow, that actually makes it easier to be creative because you're putting your energy into really nailing that tone or finding exactly the right information. You're not worried about that, that basic structure. Yeah. Okay. So we've got through the process. We've now produced our, our final copy after we've had someone edit it. Is it important that other you get a second set of eyes to have a look at what you do? 100%. Because uh, we come back to, again, the, the curse of knowledge. We've invested time in writing it. So two things. We are going to be blind to some of the errors that we might have introduced ourselves. I'm really good at picking errors in copy that other people have written. Yep. My own, no way. I, I know that um, that's not something that I can deliver a good result on, so I bring someone in to help me. Um, so, yeah, absolutely important to get someone else in to, um, to look over it for you, and that can be anyone from a colleague. Uh, often it's good to get someone in who hasn't been a part of that project. So if you're in government, finding someone from another team who can come in and give you those fresh pair of eyes. Yeah, I, I think that's really useful advice that people do take a good hard look or get somebody else to take a good hard look because often there's real value that, that people can, can bring to that. And really, we look need to look no further than the traditional practices of the major media companies. That's what sub-editors are for. You know, that's their job is to make sure that the that the copy is 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 uh, presented as effectively and as clearly as possible, and as you say, the guys who sit on the back bench are there for that particular purpose to make sure that things are okay. But something that is also equally important and perhaps come, becoming more important because of the visual web is design. What's your view about design and how you can use design to improve the impact of your writing? Oh, that's a brilliant question, and you can actually date a website by how well it uses design. So if you're looking at websites that were done maybe five or more years ago, you'll just see one long stream of copy. And you can just tell that the designer hasn't been engaged in the, in the content creation process. Whereas if you look at a lot of, um, particularly a lot of business websites, you're seeing some really innovative combinations of imagery and design elements. And so the critical thing is that content has input into the design process and vice versa. So the way I often do it when I'm working on more complex projects is I would do up a, a rough wireframe of how I think the page should look. Yeah. And that's literally just a skeleton diagram that I might draw up on a page or mock up in some software. And I'll then send that through to the designer. And the, the benefit of having a content perspective on that design is that you know how much space you're going to need to tell a story. 
if you just have a design-led approach that goes right through the project and then it's handed over to the perhaps the, to the agency themselves to fill it in, then they're often going to be constrained and they're not going to have room to give the important information up front and then the pages that are deeper in that major website are going to be just that, that text dump that we look at. So the really effective websites I see are ones where the design and content are integrated right throughout the site. Mm. And what about, you know, writing for mobile devices? Is, is that such a thing? Yeah, there's a whole developing field on this. And look, there's a couple of rules of thumb on writing for the web and one of them is make it short and make it shorter again. If I could give one one bit of advice to people out there on how they can make their writing better, it would be limit your sentence length to 25 words or less. And that's even more true on mobile because with mobile you're dealing with diminished screen estate, you're dealing with uh, fractured attention spans. And so if your website and if your content is written properly, at the really high end you'll actually have dedicated content that's created just for mobile. But if we're going back a bit from that and maybe you don't quite have the budget to do two completely different sets of content, what your web content should be is scannable. And that means that you have headings which break the content up into digestible chunks, such that if people are scrolling through it, uh, perhaps on their iPad or on their mobile device, they can get a gist for what that content is about. Okay, so we're through to the process now. We've got a a delighted audience sitting out there, sitting on the bus on the way home, perhaps consuming your content. Are there any other tips that people perhaps, that you may have left out so far that people should consider in, in that creation process? There's one I really like, which is using relational language. When we work in government we tend to be really abstracted from the impacts of our work. And so what happens is that that comes through in the language that we use. So we'll say the Department of Innovation is pleased to announce this this initiative. Uh, The department will release further information that comes to hand. And that has a bunch of... uh, There's a bunch of ways in which that hurts your content. It's harder to read for a start. Uh, it's colder. Yeah, and I don't care what the Department of Innovation <laughs> thinks. I really, no. what are they? What's in it for me? So what you can do is if you just change that to we and new language, so we will release further information as it comes to hand, it becomes much easier for people to process. But isn't it more important, though, to understand that what, actually what you're writing about is what the benefit perhaps is going to be to that particular person in the audience as opposed to XYZ announces that, you know, blah, blah, blah? Well, there's two things. The Using relational language, that's a technique that we can use perhaps when we're editing our content. Um, I always like to apply the so what test. And uh, when I'm doing some uh, QA and some content, I actually have an editor persona in my mind who's a cranky 17-year-old and I imagine him stand there with his arms folded going, so what? So you go, the department is pleased to announce this initiative and then he says, so what? And you go, well, that's going to mean that you're going to have free uh, free Wi-Fi access in Civic. And you imagine he's had a really bad day so he goes, so what again? 
And it's often when you ask so what two or three times, that's when you actually get to the meat. Yeah, it gets to the, to the audience to discover that need, going back to the first point that we said about getting out of yourself and getting into the minds and, and getting into the conversations that are going on in people's heads. So is it your answering those questions, you know, they ask, you answer. Matt, fantastic. And thank you very much for, for the insights. Uh, a lot in that, a, a lot in what, in the advice that you've given the audience there going all the way back to that first point that really it's about the audience. So get away from yourself, get away from your knowledge, get away from this curse of knowledge and really spend some time to think carefully and to then think clearly about what needs are you responding to? What things are you answering? Then get started. That's another big piece of advice really is that once you've got those insights and once you've really understood the audience and the need of the audience, that you really just have to get started. It's never going to be perfect. It's going to get started. It's going to get finished. It will never be perfect. So thanks very much for sharing a lot of those insights. Thanks for coming along and thanks very much for being in transition. Thank you, David. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in government. For more, visit us at intransitionpodcast.com.au.